0: Welcome back to the MicroConf On Air podcast. I'm your host, Rob Walling. And this week, we wrap up the top five rated talks of all time, the best of MicroConf, with our fifth talk in that YouTube playlist. It's by yours truly. It's called 11 Years to Overnight Success, From Beach Towels to a Successful Exit. And this is a talk I gave at MicroConf Growth in 2017, and I do a deep dive into the decision-making framework that I used during the acquisition of Drip, and I reflected on my journey from 2005 all the way through 2017. I looked back at my own personal changing motivation as I stair-step my way from these tiny early businesses. I had a beach towel e-commerce website that my wife still gives me crap about, and eventually building you know multiple seven-figure SaaS app and, and selling that company. and. I look at the struggles along the way and it's still pretty impactful. It, it, it is weird to put out something like this and then go back and listen to it because I'm still impacted by it and I remember a lot of the hardest points of the journey. And I also remember just how fresh and raw all of this was when I gave this talk. So I hope, you know, you get something out of it. It's not just a story. I take out a decision-making framework. I talk about how we sold Drip, why we decided to sell it, and talk about pros and cons of doing that. I'm not I don't encourage or tell you, oh, you should sell your company, but I do talk about how when that day comes, because most of us will get to the point where we at least consider selling or we have an offer. I talked about all the things that went into that decision and I, I think that can be helpful for you and overall you know there's some inspiration in here there's certainly some some strategies and there's some what I hope for you are helpful decision making frameworks as we do this very difficult thing of building these startups from nothing so I hope you enjoy this talk and get a lot out of it it's 11 years to overnight success from beach towels to a successful exit uh, yeah thanks for having me um, my, Mike, Rob, thanks for inviting me to speak. Xander, thanks for coordinating. So this is, um, this is by far the most uh, personal talk I've ever given, and it feels fitting to me that you know, I'm doing it here at MicroConf among um, hundreds of people who I respect, many of whom I've come to know and uh, many of whom I admire. So thanks for kind of coming along on this journey both with Mike and I through the years of MicroConf and you know, with me through the podcast and uh, from beach towels to a life-changing exit. We haven't had as much of it this year, but um, it's been a, a little bit of a MicroConf tradition to talk about why we do the things we do. And a couple years ago, Patrick McKenzie said, you know, all the rest of this I'm gonna give you some tactics or something to think about, but all the rest of this, all of this is dust compared to this. So this is my wife, who you'll be hearing from tomorrow from the stage, as well as our two boys going to see the Nutcracker in San Francisco. All right, so this talk, uh, it's broken up into five parts and it's gonna be about 40 minutes, maybe 45, if I tell some extra stories. And the whole point of this, there's two things. There's a couple things I want you to take away from. one. Um, you know, it, it's a long journey. I think most of us know that already. Another one is probably the most popular question or the most common question I get about selling drip was why, why, what made you decide to do it? What was your thought process? What did you go through? And Uh, That I want to talk. I'm going to dive really deep into that here in a way that I haven't. I've already talked about it on the podcast and other places. But if you've heard that, you're still going to hear more about it. And then the third thing I'm going to talk about is go really in depth as much as I can. um, You know, given that there's an NDA, I'm going to go in depth to what it looked like from the inside and what it really felt like, including like graphs and charts showing how often we spoke over these months. It's it's just a pretty fascinating process. Um, And I should make a note here that this was my thought process. Derek and I, along with our our spouses, frankly. we kind of made this. We made this decision together, um, and so this is just from my perspective of my motivations, uh, you know, and, and realizing at a certain point that I had started building products for a certain reason, and I had gone off the rails at one point, and, and thinking about how can I get back, uh, how can I get off this crazy train? Boom! That was you like that. Ah right off the cuff. I didn't even know. All right, so we're gonna start with part one. We'll walk through some different years, different phases, and then I'm gonna dig really, really deep into it in terms of the acquisition and what that actually looked like. So part one, this is 2005 to 2009. I was transitioning from, there was some salaried work in here, but there's a lot of consulting, okay? And consulting for me was very life-sucking. I just despised it. Didn't like working for other people. Didn't like the lack of freedom. Made really good money for how old I was. um, 150K, 180K some years. Uh, but I really wanted to get into products. I felt like that was the golden ticket. And so during these years, um, I either acquired or launched products like .NET Invoice, uh, Wedding Toolbox, just a random assortment, uh, Apprentice Lineman Jobs, which is a job board for uh, electricians, um, and then Just Beach Towels, which is the beach towel reference in the um, in, in the the uh, title. And Just Beach Towels was an e-commerce website, and it did a couple grand. It did zero when I acquired it, and then I learned how to market reasonably well. And it did a couple grand by the time I sold it later on, realizing I don't want to be in physical products, right? This was a big realization, but then I took that knowledge, parlayed it up into my other products. Um, DIY duck boat is an interesting one. It was a a duck boat plans that you could build. You go to, okay, so there was a whole instruction list and a a shopping list. So you could go to Home Depot. And why is that so funny? My wife gives me so much shit about this one. And I'm like... (laughs) I, this thing, so I bought it from a guy who built duck boats. He had testimonials. He had the whole thing, and he's just like, I don't know how to sell this. And it was doing 50 bucks a month, and I bought it from him for a couple hundred, and then I did SEO on it. This is 2007, maybe. And it was doing 500 bucks a month later. And I, uh, and I was like, this is a car payment, dude. Don't, don't mock me for the DIY the duck boat. You love duck boats? You love to mock me about duck boats. And then CMS Themer, which was a, really a productized service before we, we called things those. So this collaboration, this collection, the the portfolio, is if you will, of products was on the low end, you know, DIY Duckboat did 500 bucks a month. And on the high end, best month, dotnet invoice did five grand. And so combine that all together, I was running all these, it was just me, I was a coder, I was doing SEO, I was doing some AdWords, and I had a couple VAs that were, were helping me out. And this, I made less doing this than I did consulting, but I was way happier. So give or take on any given year, maybe 110 to 130 in terms of that. But I I had so much freedom, right? And the whole point of me getting into products, why I did that, why would I take a pay cut to go do something else? I was asked that by my friends whose souls were slowly being sucked out of them by their job. And I said, over time, I realized that there were three reasons that I had to do products that I needed to own, kind of own my destiny, I guess is the way I said it. Um, The first is freedom second is purpose, and the third is relationships. I'm gonna dive a little bit deeper into each of these. Now, I didn't come up with this. I actually heard it on a podcast years ago, and then I brought it up to Sherry one time, and she said, um, that's my wife, and she said, you know, this is a whole, there's psychology, there's research around this, like this, this isn't some unique thing I've come up with, but I've come to own this, like when I don't have all three of these things, I'm not happy, and I would actually, and I slowly kind of go off the rails, and I would actually say, that most people in this room, if you, since you are entrepreneurial, if you're here, you probably need these three things as well. And any one of them, if you remove it, you're gonna, you're gonna be unhappy eventually. That's my, that's my hypothesis today. So freedom, what does that mean? I think for most people in this room, it means the, I'm sorry, I was one behind. It means the ability to choose what you work on, right? You want to work on interesting things. You don't want clients dictating something. You don't want a boss dictating. And the other thing is to be in control of your time, your income, and your mobility. Tim Conley, nod to you, but it's to be in in control of, of, can I take a week off? Can I take a month off? Can I work three hours a day? Can I work when I want to, to increase, decrease your income and to be able to perhaps travel the world if you want or not. Um, These three things are very hard with traditional jobs. They're actually hard with traditional consulting. Even when I was a consultant, I didn't have these. So this was the freedom that I sought. And I think it's the freedom that a lot of us in this room seek as founders uh, or folks who are are aspiring to do this. And then the last one is that I learned later, I didn't realize this up front, but not having your life consumed by your business. Because if you're thinking about your business all the time, even if you're traveling the world and doing things that are fun, you don't have the freedom that, that you, you won't have the freedom that you want. The, the next part was purpose. Remember, freedom, purpose, and relationships. So purpose, I think, is personal. I think each of us needs to find our own purpose and find what ignites you. For me, I have learned over time that it is two things, and I could probably do a whole talk just on these two things, but for me, it's learning new things. I've found that, uh, you know, I took the StrengthsFinder test and I'm a learner, or there's some, yeah, I think it's a learner. And when I stop learning, I like shrivel, uh, metaphorically. And then um, when I stopped teaching, and teaching is, uh, this is why I do a pod, two podcasts every week. This is why I, I've written a couple books. This is why I have the blog. This is why we do microconf. This is why I do talks. Um, I've made exponentially more money from software products, but over the years, right, than, than the actual teaching and selling of stuff and, and microconf tickets or whatever. But it's, if I don't have those things, then I'm not happy. Just doing software doesn't allow me to learn and teach enough. So I found this, for you, you're gonna to have to figure out what your own personal purpose is. So um, that talk's, this talk's probably not gonna do that for you. The third thing is uh, relationships. And this is the one that I think most of us as maybe technically oriented people forget, or I, I think it's forget. And I forget this for six months at a time and suddenly realize, oh yeah, I really have kind of fucked this up. Like, you know, my wife is pissed off at me or I haven't been with my kids as much as I should have been. This is the one, or your friends, this is the one that I think that we overlook for work and for the, um, even as bootstrappers, when we have more control of our time, I think we tend to focus it on, on, the, on driving revenue forward or whatever, and relationships tends to be naturally the last thing on a lot of our minds. I think relationships um, is as important. I think this applies to everyone. I don't think you find your own kind of relationship uh, uh, equilibrium. I think relationships b- having, having this um, uh, kind of value or this, the freedom of relationships means two things. One is being able to choose whom you interact with. Um, I worked at a bunch of jobs where I was either managing people who I didn't pick, I was managed by people who I didn't like, or I had coworkers who weren't as motivated, weren't as good, weren't as whatever. I'm sure everyone in this room has experienced this. And so the ability to perhaps as a founder, build a team that you, like, and you're like, man, I, I, there's like 10 people on my team. And I re- I would hang out with all of them. I really enjoy working with them. Like the ability to have that control is I think amazing. And I think that's one of the reasons I became a founder. And, and I would guess a lot of folks in this room as well. The other one, other part of relationships is having time and headspace. So it's not just time, but it's the headspace that your business is not sucking the life out of you. Or when you're with your kids, you're thinking, oh man, is the, is the database going to grind up tonight? Or, oh boy, we got a text that the queue is down or the whatever, you know, or the marketing thing, someone's beating us to the punch, right? So it's time and headspace to be with the people that matter to you. So this is why I got into products. And I would actually guess that it's why almost every, even if you've never realized this, I think it's why most of us get into products. So products allowed me to quit consulting. And this was awesome, right? And it was like a dream come true. And again, I was making less money, but it was The days were just magical, Um, honestly. For like the first couple years, I just pinched myself all the time thinking, so I don't have a boss anymore and I can just kind of, you know, hang around and do stuff. And so I achieved freedom in in 2008, 2008, 2009, right as I stopped consulting, I, I achieved this, I achieved freedom, I achieved the purpose, which was driving my business forward and hanging out with my family. And I had amazing relationships and I really enjoyed it. So this was a win. But, I you're, there's a lot of butts in this talk. I, I go down a road and then I realize, no, not like that. Not butts like that. I heard you chuckle. Um, so I, I go down a lot of roads and then I realize uh, this isn't actually, it either isn't what I wanted or there's kind of a, something that comes out of left field and, and knocks me on my butt. Um, sorry, that's as good as it gets with me. So this is why I have intermissions. Remember with the videos and stuff. Okay, so th- uh, what happened is this would happen to uh, a number of my products, but dotnet invoice revenue in 2008 actual revenue numbers. Dun dun. Yeah, you can read that. All right. So we start in May of 2008 and it goes to March of the following year. It's a one-time sale product, right? It's not a SaaS app. So we see 1500, 1500, 1500 swings way up to five grand because I did some big deal with a web host, and then you can see October it drops down and it bottoms out around 500 and then it swings back up. And this was around the financial crisis, but this, this was a little extreme, but it was also not totally uncommon. And so I had five, six products at any given time and they were doing this. And for me, I suddenly had freedom of purpose and relationships, but I was stressed the hell out all the time because I'm thinking, am I going to can I, am I gonna do this for five years? Or am I gonna go back to consulting, which I couldn't imagine fate worse than death? Or am I gonna go back to salaried employment, which is even a fate worse than a fate worse than death? And, and I just couldn't imagine, like I, I need something that's gonna last here. I'm a very long-term thinker. And so I added one more item to my list. So we have this freedom you've heard about. We have this purpose of, of learning and teaching. We have the relationships, obviously. And I added this one, stability. It's the stability or the longevity, maybe a better way to put it, is like something that's going to last and I don't have to worry about every day. I don't have to think about every week of, am I going to have to, you know, sell the kids to pay the, the mortgage or something? And so um, I started with, how, like, how do I achieve this? That's the big question. So I think of, of products that I've just shown, you know, all these one-time sale products and such as being kind of stability 1.0 and realizing that was not. That was not going to cut it. So I was thinking, like, how do I how do I get stability? This is, keep in mind. This is two thousand nine, and in fact, in two thousand ten, like the kind of the cool part of the story is we had our second son, and I took about eight or nine months where I worked eight to twelve hours a week, just because I had these products that were really mostly in autopilot, and they got at, you know organic traffic and such. Um, and now that, that is time. I will I will never I will. Sorry. I will never in my life regret the, you know, the months that I spent with him. Um, huh. You practice a talk and you don't do this and then you get in front of people. Um, I will never in my life regret the time that I, you know, spent with him. Um, later on, there is time that I will regret and I'll loop that back. But uh, not spending with him, not, yeah, all right. So um, this was like, this was, the, this was my dream come true from the time, you know, I was, whatever, 20-something years old was to be able to have products and be in control of this and have the freedom. But realizing that it could be taken away at any time was, was frightening to me as someone who wants this stability, right, or wants long-term uh, longevity. And so I realized that what I really needed was instead of these stupid one-time sales, and again, this is 2009, 2010, I wanted recurring revenue. Okay, so we all know this now, but give me a break. It was seven years ago. We didn't even, SaaS didn't even exist. It did, but we didn't call it that yet. So recurring revenue was absolutely, I thought, the golden ticket. It was... The holy grail and indeed it was the best thing since sliced bread and it turns out it was um, in 2011 when i went back to work because i did eventually get bored um, of i, I love being with the kid but eventually you got to do your next thing right you got to learn and teach so in 2011 i went after stability 2.0 and this is where i said i need to i need to build or i need to buy a sas app and you know I basically took the revenue so the way I acquire, you know, acquired and built all those other apps that I showed you earlier, .NET invoice is I had enough money in a bank account from consulting I had15,000 dollars that I'd saved up over a year and I bought .NET invoice for 11 grand and then I took that revenue, I grew the business, and then I had another 10 grand and I bought the next one. And then I had five grand and I bought this. So that was it, it, was, it was no, there was no trust fund, it came from a working class family, my dad was an electrician. This was just me working and saving money and doing it. Same thing with HitTail. So that was the SaaS app I acquired in 2011. And I have an in-depth co- uh, talk, in fact it's one of my, it's one of my favorite talks I've, I've ever given. It was three or four years ago at MicroConf, and uh, it's called How to 10X in 15 Months. And, um, Yeah, it's like 51 minutes of just talking about taking it from whatever 1,500 a month in revenue and and growing it up. And I go month by month. It's it's just I've watched it in you know recently and just been like, man, that's you nailed it on that one. And uh, (laughs) I don't I tend to be my worst critic, so I don't pat myself on the back very much. So the story was I I buy the SaaS app that's doing 20 grand annual revenue, right? So right around 1,500. Paid 30 grand for it. And again. I didn't have a trust fund for the 30 grand. The 30 grand was revenue from .NET Invoice and beach towels. And I'm just building and building and building. And of course, the night I wired the 30 grand, I told Sherry, I, what, the, what the fuck have I done? Like, I've never had that much money in my life and I just sent it to someone and I bought this piece of shit app. <laughs> and, uh, and she said, but this is what you do. This is what you do. This is who you are. If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? And I didn't have an answer. So I worked over the next 18 months with a couple contractors, mostly on my own, and uh, got it up to a 300k run rate, which was a life-changing moment for me, because you think I'm kind of cruising, living in you know Central Valley, California, with my family, which was great. And again, you know, from those products, I was making 110, 120k, which is a great you know great living. We could afford a house and such. And then this this was a game changer because this you know you, you know SaaS, especially um, when you don't have a lot of uh, I didn't need a lot of developers because I was just kind of coding it myself. 80% margins, right? Maybe more net margins. So I was just making more money than I had ever seen. And we, we, we banked a lot of it and we used it to you know, travel a little more, but it was, it was an amazing, it was again, that next step of the dream. You know, It was going from kind of making a living to then, wow, holy crap, I, I've, I've made it. Like I remember, I was like, I think I've like made it. This is it, I, I'm done. I'm gonna retire, I'm mean, going 65, I'm doing this forever. But there were some things that kept happening. So about every six months, Google, would do that. And not intentionally, but Google has a way, just like a lot of big companies do, of accidentally just breaking all your shit if you rely on them. So they had, they had not provided. Remember when they used to give keywords? That's what Hittail used. And so then they went not provided and Hittail was like decimated. So I was freaking out thinking, I've sold most of those other apps. My whole income, my whole you know kind of uh, uh, livelihood is based on this this app. And what, if it goes under, like, I, what am I, again, am I going to go back to consulting? Like salary? Like this is too, I'm too far along in this to take that step back. You know, and and I probably wouldn't have had to consult for long, but um, it was scary to me. I, I didn't have the stability that I wanted. And, and Google did this about every six months. They then broke a, I was scraping something and then they broke that and then Google Webmaster tools and then they broke that and they just kept doing it. And it always happened when I was like, I was at microconf about to go on stage and then I'd be 600 errors cause you can't import anything. And it's like, oh my gosh. And I'm the only guy that developed on it. So it was, or we were in Europe and then it happened and it was always like, I don't wanna do this until I'm, am I gonna do this when I'm 50 or 65? Like, is this app actually gonna be a decade or two decade long app? Can I bet my future on it? Cause if not, I need to find yeah, okay, so I didn't have stability, that's the whole point. But if not, I need to find stability 3.0, right? That's, I, I realized there was something else that I needed to do to feel for me like I had something that was gonna last a decade or maybe even longer, assuming I lived that long. Boom, I have life insurance, don't worry. So, um, all right, stability 3.0 I realized was not being reliant on a single external data source, right? So not being like a Twitter client or needing all of Google stuff in order to function. And so this was a big one for me. There were two other things that I didn't love about HitTail. One was the price point was pretty low, and so churn was pretty high, and it wasn't a core business application. So it was just something that was gonna—it's doing well. I sold it about I don't know, 15, 16 months ago, and new owners love it. But it, uh, just I didn't think it was you know in my my long-term interest to keep doing it. So part two is the next step after HitTail. Okay, and that was, of course, Drip. Derek, um, who you heard from earlier, he, he broke around on code in uh, late 2012, and we launched in 2013. I've talked extensively about the Drip and the process of growing it, finding product market fit and stuff. I'm not gonna rehash that here. Suffice to say, for those who haven't heard it, or even just to refresh your memory, uh, 2013 was really the year we launched it. 2014 was the year we found product market fit. All of this is actual revenue. I've, this is online. I've published this uh, in previous talks. But that was um, the launch, right? So you see the $7,500 was in November, December of 2013. Yeah, 2013. And then we kinda, it took us about seven months to really find product market fit. You can see it dipped down, and we, we just built mail, part of MailChimp, and nobody wanted it. And then we eventually, by the time we added uh, automation in July of 2014, that's where the ten eight happens, and we had completely stopped marketing between then and then, and yet, you know, all the numbers went in the right direction, so that was an amazingly fun adventure, and by fun, I mean it totally sucked, because I'll get to that later, but, and this is the, the starting to scale, which is the same, it's just an extension of the graph, right, so you see the 7501 there, and then eventually, um, in, I can't even, you know, I can't read it, it's in mid-25th, yeah, we got up to 45K. So this was the last time I really talked about hit tail revenue. And uh, you know, there's a reason for that, because we started getting acquisition, uh, inbound acquisition interests, and it just didn't make sense to keep doing it. We also had a bunch of competitors, some of who were um, stealing our ideas and claiming they were their own. So that didn't quite, that didn't quite fly. So I started being a little, um, you know, a little more tight-lipped about it. All that to say... um, this looks amazing, right? This is, the, this is the next dream. This is the dream of every SaaS founder is to have this amazing growth curve. And yet, this was what drip, drip net profit looked like. Uh, and from June 13, I'm sorry, June 2013 to March 2015. I'm not gonna put a scale on the left. Suffice to say, um, that red line is zero. So it's all negative. And that is each month, so that's not a cumulative. Each month was negative. Um, And it was negative by thousands or tens of thousands. That's all I will say. I I was not dropping six figures a month. All of this was subsumed. The reason I had this money was I was just taking all the profit out of Hittail. So taking Hittail profit as it starts, Hittail starts to go down because I'm not working on it anymore. Derek and I are working on Drip and I'm just bailing, bailing money out of one into another. You know, so you can see where this is going. So we finally, you know, we break even just on one month, we break even so it doesn't pay it back, but at least we broke even by, uh, it looks like, yeah, March of of 2015. Now what this meant was in 2014, um, I had the hardest year of my entrepreneurial career by far. And it was especially the latter half. I had, at the time, again, the most money I had ever seen in my life in, an, in a bank account, and it was all basically hit tail revenue and, and some of Drip, and it was $150,000, and I could not believe there was that much money in an account. I did not grow up with that much money. And I was dumping it all, I, not dumping, but I was pushing it all into Drip. I, we hired a head of revenue to try to move faster because it's such a just such a competitive space, right, to be in marketing automation. And within 60 days, I had a, a 60 or $70,000 tax bill. Um, some expenses came due that I didn't expect. Um, I forget what the other thing was, but I, suffice to say, I wrote $120,000 in checks out of that account, poof. So now I have $30,000 in a bank account that I used to have 150, and I essentially had enough money to make payroll for 45 days. And it was myself, it was Derek, and it was two engineers that we had just hired. We were with three months past hiring them. And I realized I made a, it was my fault. Like I made a shitty cash management decision. I I messed it up. There's no doubt. But it took six or seven months to recover, because I had no other outs. Right? I don't have a parent who I could borrow money from. I actually could really consider borrowing from a 401k, which is very much against who I am. I was trying to figure out if I could borrow against credit cards. I mean, it's just stupid. You just get to a point where you're like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Am I gonna lay somebody off that I just like my whole community knows? We had this little tight tech community, and it's like, I don't know, man. So you know, hopefully my mistake can be just a warning to everyone else, but this was the year that I regretted. I talked to you about that I will never regret the time that I spent with, with my son. This is the, the six months that, that I deeply regret because I realized I, I really didn't have freedom anymore. I had a purpose, that was cool, but I was certainly fucking up my relationships. And around this time, this is when I told my wife, I said, you know, this, this is it. I can't, I can't do this again. Like I'm not gonna start another one from scratch. I'm assuming we're gonna make it out of it. I'm gonna figure it out, but, but I'm done after this. Like whatever, I don't know what after this means. Maybe, maybe I run it till I'm dead and then I really am done. Or maybe, maybe I, you know, whatever. Maybe Derek essentially eventually buys me out or maybe we just have so much cash we hire a CEO or maybe we get acquired or maybe we, whatever it is, I'm not doing another one of these. And my wife, she's, so, she's very tactful, right? She's a psychologist. Way, has a way with words and kind of can ease you into things and help you try to see what the deeper meaning in what you're saying, she said, yeah, that's bullshit. <laughs> because this is what you do. I don't think it's bullshit. That's unsettled. She still sa- thinks it is. I don't, I don't think I'm going to do another one. Um, okay. So been a little heavy and uh, I don't like talking straight for 40 minutes. So I have a couple, this is a really quick intermission based on normally what I have. So first lesson is don't leave your phone unlocked with your kids in the house. Okay, so I got, I picked up my phone and I, uh, all right, there it is. So yeah, and then there were videos and there were, so there were like 400 of these on my phone and I'm sitting there like delete, delete. And then finally someone showed me uh, that you can bulk delete. So thank you, thank you, Anna. So, and then here's the other one. Do we have volume on video? All right. So this is, this is a short one, but a little joke. And I think, I, I think maybe this kid takes after me. Let's listen to this joke here. You're in a concrete room with a saw and a table. What do you do? I don't know. What do I do? The answer is, you saw the table in half, two halves make a hole, climb out the hole. That's it. Sorry. I, <laughs> poor kid. He has me as a, as a humor role model. Can you imagine? Yeah, exactly. So anyways, it gets better. Um, hopefully he'll learn from his mom in the long term. Okay. So we come, we did make it past 2014. I did not, um, you know, I did not completely spontaneously combust, uh, even though I felt like I was going to. So we make it to, to 2015 and now the profits starting to come in. Right. And so I'm like, all right. We crossed over that barrier. SaaS, we're growing fast. We're growing faster than you know that curve I showed you. Like we started accelerating past there. We introduced um, uh, workflows. Is that right? Yeah. We know, I think that's no. It that was until 2016. Sorry, but uh, automation really picked up, and we were really starting to take a lot of, of our competitors' customers. And so, um, drip net profit. And again, there's no. There not scale on this, but it's thousands to to tens of thousands. Like I said, this is what it looked like from March 2015 to uh, for about the next year. April 2016, which is just a few months before the acquisition closed. So anybody who's run a SaaS app in a highly competitive space where you're fast growing and you basically need to hire bodies as soon as you have the revenue in order not to get killed uh, by the competition, or you could slow growth. But anyone who's been in that, that situation knows that as soon as you have five or 10K, you hire another body. And as soon as you have five or 10K, you hire that next body just to keep up. Especially if you're scaling an app that requires a lot of, um, a lot of queuing, a lot of technology intensive stuff where the database is falling over every four months and you have to redeploy it. And the Amazon instances go from 1500 to three grand to six grand a month just to keep the service going. And that, that's what this curve means. That's why even after hitting profitability, you know, you can see November and February, we basically uh, breaking even when the line hits the zero at the bottom. So the line, yeah, the x-axis, I'm sorry, is a zero. I'm not, to, I'm not here to say SaaS apps don't make money, because SaaS apps mint money, right? I mean, it, it, if, if you hit a place where you don't have a ton of competition like we do, you hit a place where you have a hit tail, you hit a place where, you know, maybe your growth is a little slower, or even you just have a different scenario than this. You don't have 500 people, uh, 500 other companies coming after you. In our situation, It was. uh, This is what it looked like. This is as as well as I know how to manage a company and and build a product and you market and this, this this was it. So again, I could have slowed. We could have slowed growth and just said, we're just going to grow slower and not hired these people. Um, But it was it was not something that that we were looking to do. We were looking to you know to keep keep taking market share. And the thing I learned from this, of course, is something we all probably know, but maybe don't, we know it intrinsically, but maybe haven't said it out loud, is that fast growing companies are very, very rarely profitable. And so while fast growing sounds great, it is something where you have to ask yourself, how long am I willing to forego profit for growth? It's just a gut check. Your answer may be, you know, if, if, I was, if I was 25 years old and I had fire in my belly, maybe I'd be willing to do it for 10 or 20 years. I'm gonna be 43 this year and I've done a lot of these, and um, at a certain point, you know you look around and you think to yourself, "I'm all in on this. I am all in. I am 43 years in, I'm 15 years of an entrepreneurial career, or I guess maybe that's only 11 or 12. But everything I have is here. If this company goes under, if something happens and it explodes, if we can't keep up, if a competitor kills us, I'm. Going back to consulting, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I would have done that, but can you imagine me, like, coding, hey, can I get a job? I'd in a to company and like, anybody hire me for, da- C-sharp, guys, I'm really good. I just, it, it was scary. And, and I, I thought about this a lot, and I reflected, and, and again, you know, remember, Derek and I were making all these decisions and stuff, so this is not necessarily his experience, but this was, is this was mine. I go back to this quote from uh, Rand Fishkin, who is the CEO of SEO Moz, which is an oft admired SaaS company, and they you know, have been, uh, they were fast growing. They raised uh, a round of funding around this time. And there was a whole thread online. This is five years ago, maybe it was well before drip. And he says, at the time we raised buckets of money, I think they raised 10 or 20 million. I don't remember. He says, we had, I had personally as a CEO, 25K in a checking account. I had no car and I had a rented apartment in in walking distance to my office. And at this point they were doing a million a month, more than a million a month. And there was a whole conversation about, he was like, this is how do, isn't it supposed to be different? Like when I watch the social network, this is not what happens. This, what's amazing is so I did this, I did a part of like some of this talk in Europe. Since then, since the, our acquisition, this happened in November, this is like four months ago. You can't read it at all, I'm gonna hop down and read it. So this guy, Name Will Reynolds. I don't know who he is. He tweets, he says, beware of the illusion of success. Most people you look up to are more invested in looking successful than being successful. And Rand Fishkin tweets back to him. I, I love, I love Rand for this. He is so honest. Every time I, you hear him, he's, he's transparent, not for the bullshit transparency. I want to market my company. He's transparent because that's who he is. He replies and he says, I just want one win, just one. And Will replies, Does a win for you require an exit or going public? And Rand says, an exit of any kind, sale, IPO, private equity buyout, et cetera. I wanna go from aspiring entrepreneur to successful entrepreneur. Now, I don't agree with Rand's definition that you have to have an exit or an IPO to be a successful entrepreneur. But what I do see in Rand is that it sounds like he's fucking burned out. It sounds like he is just taking punches in the gut. He's been running this business for over 10 years as far as I know. And to him, I don't know if he still has 25K in his bank account, but I would sure feel like shit if that were my situation. And I had watched this evolve over time. And I, So in mid 2015, my personal state of affairs is, we've reached profitability for some months. Do I have freedom? And the answer was no. The, we were hustling. We were, we were busting our asses on this business. I was thinking of it along with Derek day and night. Do I have purpose? I did. Because the purpose was to grow the business, and I actually really loved that, and talking to people at MicroConf, getting, you know, new customers, all that stuff. Did I have really healthy relationships? No, because I was thinking about my business all the time. And did I have stability? I mean, I had a growing SaaS business, but it isn't the 20-year stability. I kept thinking, am I going to be doing this when I'm even 50, right? I'm, 40, I'm 42 at the time. Am I going to be doing this when I'm 50? That's only eight years out. And it was like, I, I don't know if I have... I don't know if I have another eight years of this pace. It might just kill me. So Derek and I were talking like, all right, wh- what are we doing? We're growing fast. We can keep doing this. We're going to slow growth. Um, we started talking about funding. Are we going to just, let's raise a small round, you know, do a 250 or 500K. Is that going to fix our stuff? How long will it, will it fix it? And so we evaluated that and we talked it through. And there are pros and cons, especially in our, in our shoes at the time, like it would definitely have cut down on the monetary stress within the business because I was still hadn't paid myself back for all the money that I'd pulled out. And I felt like um, just never having to put money in again and being able to take investor money would have been easier, um, which is almost never the case if you ask someone who's done it. Uh, But it was gonna delay profitability for years, right? Because if you take the money, then you're taking it at at a pretty hefty valuation. We weren't gonna value the company at two million bucks or something when we're doing seven figures in revenue. So we're gonna take this hefty valuation and now we're in it for three, five, seven more years And I feel like by this time, I'm like, I don't know. I I don't know if I can do it for seven more years. I don't know that I can commit to that. So during this, we were evaluating this constantly, every week, every two weeks. I'm like, Derek, what do you think about this? What do you think about raising money? I talked to Anna about it. What what would this look like? And during this time, 2015, is when acquisitions started coming in. So we had a lot of offers um, of, of differing types, right? So we had, I got two to three, maybe four emails a month with funding offers. A lot of you in here do that. If you're on anybody's radar, you get the junior, you know, junior uh, person at a a VC fund. They're just doing lead gen and stuff. Some of them were more serious than others, I will say. I won't go into details, but uh, it would have been pretty easy to raise around. Um, I, I don't see that being a problem. The more interesting thing was we had five potential acquirers inbound contact us who all have, actually four of them had the money to acquire us at a multiple that made sense, like a, you know, a startup multiple, not, um, not some, some garage sale. And that was interesting, only in the sense that I really was not, build, we, we didn't build Drip to sell it. It wasn't on the radar before that. But as we started getting this inbound interest, interest, it was like, huh, so what is the choice here? You know, we could sell, we could raise this funding, we could keep doing what we're doing, maybe slow it down, could grow out of revenue. Then one email came through. This is one of the five, actually. And it was one that was perhaps the most interesting. So it's from Clay Collins. And he says, Love Drip, interested in selling it. Would you ever consider selling Drip? I really like it. And of course, my answer was in my head, like, No. Really not interested, right? And then I gave it a little more thought and realized, <clears throat> Under what circumstances would I sell it? Reframed the question Is there any does everyone have a number, you know, as, as Natalie said? Does everyone have a number and it's not just a number, right? There are terms, there are deal breakers. So I started making lists and the nice part is I took six months. Um, I had retreats, I had all this stuff and I just kept making lists of what would it look like? What would I, what are my absolute deal breakers that I will not sell for and what are the deal breakers that um, if, you know, if someone delivered all this stuff that it, that it would work again, Derek's list was probably different. We merged them in the end, but this is just, yeah, I'm speaking for myself. So I realized that perhaps for me, stability 4.0 was sunset money is what I'm calling it. So some people call it fuck you money, but that's just not my style. So I just, I don't know. It's just aggressive. And like, I'm not going to tell anyone to fuck you, but I came up with sunset money when someone asked, uh, someone on the podcast, they said, you sold your company, it wasn't me. They said, You sold your companies, do you have enough money to just ride off into the sunset? And the guy said, Yeah, I did. And I thought, I like that's a better way to say it, like sunset money. So I realized, huh, maybe that would make sense. You know, if I could if I could do it and never have to work again, I don't know. i think about it if, if the terms are right. And so, you know, again as you look back at all these these things that I parlayed, so I start, you know, I again working class family. I made 17 bucks an hour at my first job out of college. And I programmed, I learned to code and 60 bucks an hour as a developer. And then just bought Invoice, bought the others, bought Hittail. And then those are gone. Take all the money from Hittail, put it into Drip. And in, you know what, two years by this time, we were, this is um, uh, data nice. And we're 10th on that list, right? Of market share of marketing automation. And we were four people in a damn closet in Fresno, and it's HubSpot, and it's Marketo, and it's Pardot, and it's, look above us, uh, a- a- Eloqua, active Campaign and the Sharpspring, and then it's Drip. And it's like, who are these freaking clowns? Like, these, these guys even know what they're doing? And so it was really like, we had built something pretty special with a very small team. And so it wasn't exactly something I wanted to be like, yay, if they can offer us, you know, a million dollars, we're gonna sell, or if they can offer I me mean, enough sunset money, I'm, I'm gonna be done, because we, we had, I viewed drip as a once-in-a-lifetime thing for me. I, 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 don't know, I, don't, I don't know if that's gonna happen twice for most people, unless your name is Jason Cohen or Heaton Shaw, but let's get, my name's not either of those. So there are always objections to selling, and this is what I started thinking through is, why shouldn't I sell, why should I sell? Um, objections, objections to selling that you will hear, especially in maybe our community of, of bootstrappers, but maybe even for, for any startup founder is, you know, my startup is my baby. Uh, I, I can't sell it. And I always think of this like, yeah, that's a negotiating tactic. Like your, your startup's not your baby, guys. We, we all have kids. And trust me, you like, even if they're my kids, you like them more than, uh, than your startup. Um, I just, I've never felt this way, right? I've had a lot of different apps. And so uh, this wasn't necessarily a deal breaker for me. I've heard this one interesting. We talked about this at dinner last night. Selling is selling out. And this is always said by someone who's never built a business that's worth selling. I've never heard a founder at MicroConf tell me that selling is selling out. It's always some guy, when Mojang sold for a billion dollars, right, the Minecraft thing, Notch, this programmer who built this thing. I was just like, mad props, dude. A billion dollars, that's insane. And we were at some dinner that night and like a friend of ours, again, who had never never been an entrepreneur, he's like, Notch sold out. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, what does that mean? Come on, the guy busted his ass for years. Like, so I, I just don't buy this. I think this is bullshit. What else would I do is another one I've heard. Well, if I sold my company, what else would I do? I hope you have an answer to this because if you don't have anything else but your company, then you, you might need to talk to get some consulting from a really good trained psychologists like my wife. No, I mean, you need to have hobbies. Like, what else would I do? Just off the top of my head, this is not your list, but my list is, well, I'm gonna run three conferences a year, probably write another book, I'm gonna do two podcasts, maybe I'll start a third, maybe I will, uh, I travel a little more, maybe I'll spend more time with my family and kids. That's what else I would do. So the what else would I do thing, I've always thought like, that sounds like an excuse. So that's, those are the, those are the why not to sells. Reasons to sell now, this is the interesting part. We all think, we hear about you know, Zuckerberg coming in and buying Instagram in a weekend. That never happens, ever, except for that one time. Um, and uh, you like that, never, ever, except for the one time. Um, but the thing is, is that you will hear countless tales. If you, if you poke into it and actually look at, at sales, you'll hear a lot of people that ride their, they ride their company over the top for one reason or another. Uh, You'll ride it and it's growing, man. Woo, we're just on over. And then something happens. And it may be, maybe you lose your CTO. Maybe uh, you have a big outage and you lose people. Maybe you just, you hit that plateau because we all hit a plateau where churn meets your acquisition. And eventually, once you hit the plateau, you're not worth nearly as much. I'm talking multiples less. And it may even move from where you're talking revenue multiples down to like net profit multiples, which is a a 10X or a 30X uh, discount. It's insane. So the... While, you ha- while you're growing and while you have inbound interest, that's the other thing. So let's say we hadn't, you know, we hadn't sold drip. And then right now I'm totally burning out. And, you know, I I'm, I'm, want to sell it. And we then go into the market to sell it. That's not good because then you're trying to sell something and you're going to be taught, you're not going to be talking revenue multiple anymore. You're going to be talking net profit multiple. It's such a different, it's a, a different orders of magnitude. So, this is where the startups are bought, not sold thing comes from. You've probably heard this before. When you have inbound interest, there is a school of thought that says strike while the iron is hot because that inbound interest is not going to be there forever. You're not going to be, um, as hot in a hot market as you are, you know, because uh, marketing automation was, was, was a hot thing. It still is, but there's only so many years that's going to happen. It's not going to last for a decade where everybody wants to buy marketing automation. Um, so it's hard to look at, you know, when you, if you get inbound interest, it's hard to just say no. I think I have heard regrets. So as we were going through the process, I talked to several founders, some of whom sold and some of who didn't. The ones who didn't sell, most of them regretted not selling when they did, because if they sold later, then, then they had you know, a lower multiple. The other thing is, is, this is the really counterintuitive one, the best time to sell is when you don't need to sell, when you're going fast, when everything's going up and to the right, because once you plateau, then um, you're, you're worth less. So my, oh, this is, yeah, and this is the best quote here on this topic. Once again, Jason Cohen bringing the thunder even when he's not here. So he wrote a blog post about him selling his company it's called Rich or King. And he says, see, it's good to be king. King is when you run your company forever. It's a DHH thing, right, or a Joel Spolsky. It's good to be king, but what do you do when you're at Trudy's North Star Tex-Mex restaurant tucking into a chili relleno and the guy across the table looks you in the eye and offers you enough money that you never have to work again? Shit gets real interesting to talk about it in the in the theoretical and to say selling is selling out, but what do you do when someone looks you in the eye and said, your kid's college paid for. And if you want to give, you know, if given the choice, you never have to work again. And that number, by the way, for different people is totally different, right? Some people in this room might need 10 million and never have to work again. Other people, maybe it's one or two, but there's, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's a hundred for some folks, but it's really fascinating to think about this. So get, this was the, the process and the thought and the, the, my reply, back to the story, Clay Collins emailed June 2015 and he says, I'd like to buy it. Would you be willing to sell it? And my reply was, after consulting with Derek, of course, I'm flattered that you would consider acquiring Drip. Drip is growing quickly and we're profitable, so selling now would need to make a lot of sense for me. And you were here a couple years ago, so you probably remember how that feels. And it went from there. I'll get into, continue the story there. I realized during this time, as I said, I came up with my deal breakers on uh, retreats and other things, and I had four deal breakers. One is that since I did genuinely see this as my last one, I ha- it had to be Sunset Money because was no- I wasn't gonna do this again. So I had to be able to, you know, given my current assets and whatever else is going on, I had to be able to kind of compile all this and feel comfortable given math and, and retirement that yeah, I don't need to work anymore, you know? Um, I did not want anyone to lose their job. The team is just too precious to me, it still is. Um, I didn't want to screw our customers, meaning I didn't want the roadmap to go in some weird direction. I didn't want um, the product to get shut down, as, as a lot of startups do. And I had to keep doing what I do, right? This is the teaching. So I, need, I wanted to keep doing podcasts and microconf and such. And so, Turns out there was one acquirer that was really on board with this and in fact suggested some of these before I even did. And that was the cool part. And of course that was, that was lead Pages, you know, the end of this. So um, this is what acquisition activity, this is when we dive, dive into like what this actually looked like from, from inside. This is what the activity looked like for about a year from his first email all the way to the day it closed. And this is the number approximately of, of back and forths uh, via email or um, I think Voxer, I think those are the two. And so you can see Clay made first contact in June of 2015. He sent that email. I replied with the reply you saw, and we, we kind of went back and forth. And then things kind of drifted. That's actually when they raised their round. They raised a, I think it was a $28 million uh, B round, and it was to acquire companies. It was right in that month. And so I was like, oh, huh, cool, cool. This, uh, they're actually serious about this. And then things just kind of, you know, you can see July, August, September, They re- almost zero contact. Um, I, you know, I don't know, I can't speak for what was going on there. I don't know if they were busy or I don't know if my reply scared them off, right? My reply was kind of like, needs to be worth my while, you know, kind of, it was a negotiating thing. I mean, I think that's, there was a lot of that coming from both sides is there will be in a a deal of this size. I think once someone makes contact with you, every interaction from then on is part of a negotiation. Some, a friend of mine advised me on that and I thought it was, I wouldn't have thought of that. It was pretty clever. Um, So in October, uh, someone got back in touch for, you know, with me again. And uh, that was when they really asked for, like, what, what did the numbers really look like? Because I think I had just given them blanket MRR, but they wanted churn, you know, they wanted, like, numbers like my churn grid, all that stuff. So that was when it was like, I don't necessarily know, like, should we sign an NDA? I don't know what the standard is. And that's when I talked to, uh, to Thomas at, at FE International. Um, I'm actually doing QA with him tomorrow, Q&A up here tomorrow, um, about buying and selling businesses. But they you know, are definitely better at this stuff than we are, right? We will do in our lifetime, right? Each of us max one or two of these, whereas a company like FE or, you know, whoever else you were to find to represent you, they're going to do hundreds. And the person on the other side of the deal is going to be doing hundreds. Typically they have someone, you know, big company doesn't just hire Joe Blow founder to do something. They actually have experts if they're going to spend a lot of money on a company. So that was when I did that. And then we, again, went, we went back and forth and then You know, stuff just kind of trailed off December and January. We launched Workflows, which is our visual builder. We launched that at the end of January. And that's when we really started getting into stuff. And and it got really stressful. It was at the beginning of the year. And that's when, you know, you see a number on a piece of paper. And you're like, Derek and I walked out into a parking lot because we couldn't tell the team, you know, that we were like even considering this because you don't want to de- derail everybody and you feel guilty because you're keeping a secret from them. But Derek and I walked out in the parking lot and I'm like shaking. I'm like, I can't even, bu- this is it just got real, man. There's like a number on that thing that there's a lot of zeros. And, and so that was this was the negotiation back and forth. We couldn't agree on a price and then we reconnected. So this is it, I'm showing you this. It feels tedious, right? Just on this slide, this was a fucking year of my life. I mean, th- it was, talk about tedious and a year of my family's life too. Talk to Sherry about it later on. Um, you know, so then we agreed on a price. Eventually we signed a letter of intent, got lawyers involved and, um, what, yeah, it was about a month or two later that, uh, we closed July 1 of, uh, of 2016. Um, incidentally, I'll talk about this a little later, but we started telling the team like two weeks before it closed. And I think that was absolutely the right decision because you, you can't, you can't distract your team. It's so distracting to, to be going through this. All right. Last section's coming up. we got the, we got to finish this one off, though. You're in a concrete room with a table and a mirror. How do you get out? I don't know. How do I get out? You look into the mirror, you see what you saw, you grab the saw, you saw the table in half, two halves make a hole, you cut out the hole. This guy's got swagger. <laughs> uh, all right, so last section here. Um, so reflections on this. And what's cool is I, so I gave a good chunk of this talk in Europe, but I'm, I was like, I think we were 60 days, you know, past the acquisition, nine months now. So I really have a lot, you know, some thoughts and reflections. Um, so July 1 of 2016. Yes, we were, uh, we were acquired and it, um, it, we made it public, I think a week later, because you just got to write press releases and all this stuff. And, and they announced it. Um, Now, you probably were thinking, July 1 of 2016, this was me, right? (laughs) Perhaps even this, both Derek and I. But indeed, I was at, with that same funny kid, I was at a uh, Suzuki cello camp. And I was, with Suzuki cello, you're supposed, or strings at all, you're supposed to be in with the child as the uh, the instructor's doing stuff, and you're kind of working with them. And I like, phone, and they look at me like, why is your, fo- your phone supposed to be out there? And I'm like, I got to sign documents. Excuse me. And so I run, run out and I'm feeling like so ashamed, you know? And I'm like signing this deal size on my damn phone. And it was just the irony of it. I was just like, this is it though. But like relationships, right? Like I was there for the kid. The kid didn't know. And it, so it was, a, it was a fun time. It was a fun time. And that's when, you know, Derek texted me with a screenshot of the bank account where I was like, whoa, all right. Here a couple takeaways and takeaways and then I'll wrap up if you have, if you go through this, it's going to take a long, it takes a long time. You saw from that graph, that is absolutely typical from all the research I did. I listened to audiobooks on this. I listened to, there's entire podcasts that just interview people who've had real acquisitions like this, not Instagram and TechCrunch and all that crap, but the people who really sell in our our space for like a a, a nice, you know, uh, like an actual acquisition. It's going to take a long time. It's going to take longer than you think and absolutely longer than you want it to, period. So you have to, the one piece of advice I would give you is to run your business as if you are not being acquired. Because if we had suddenly stopped hiring, stopped spending money on ads, stopped done anything different the day that Clay acquired, uh, uh, you know, emailed me, we would have had a year of just, I don't know, what, slow growth? We would have imploded. We, I mean, you just can't do that. You don't know how long it's going to take. So right up until the last minute, I mean, it was like maybe two weeks before I was still telling Sherry, I just don't know if this is going to go through. I don't know if this is going to go through. And she's like, "You, we can't do that. We're like moving, dude. We're moving to Minneapolis. So you, I, I really, this was a, a mistake people said that they made pretty commonly in these interviews with folks who had sold their businesses that they started like trying to keep hoard cash or not hire or do weird things. And you, you just can't do it. We hired two people within, you know, three or four months before, um, the acquisition closed and, you know, it, it is what it is. It was a good decision. The other, the last thing I talked about earlier is like, it is so distracting for everyone, but firewall them until the last possible days. And, and it's tough. And I, Went, Derek or I, or, or both of us went and sat down with every member of our team. There were only eight of us, so we were able to do that. Individually, we went and we said, I'm gonna tell you news that's gonna, I'm gonna tell you something that's gonna sound like bad news at the start, but trust me, it's, it's gonna be good for all of us. And then we went through it. And in the end, I, I actually, if you asked anyone on our team, I think they would agree that it was, it was good for all of us in the end. There's a bunch of good stuff that happened that I don't have time to talk about, but. Um, in the end, the reasons it went through, at least for me, are that none of my deal breakers were ever even questioned or ever even, you know, not, not on the table as, as terms. And when I think about it, you know, does long-term, does this give me freedom? Yes, absolutely, and even in the short term, it gives me freedom to not have to be worrying about the business so much. Do I still have the purpose of growing Drip? Yes, because Derek and I and the team are still, everybody's still there, right? We all, all are still working on the app. Does it give me more time for relationships? Absolutely. And does it give me my stability 4.0? And yeah, it does. So what happened next? Um, We were all given the the choice of, you know, move to Minneapolis uh, or not. Minneapolis is a really cool city. So flash forward a couple months and this was me walking to work in my Han Solo, (laughs) almost frozen in carbonite outfit. Um, It was 30 below that day. And that was a new experience for me. That, I'm in the lobby of lead pages. That's it's crazy. And then this is Sherry and our and our uh, I think our six-year-old, and she has a water bottle in her hand because it was so cold that day. The snow doesn't stick together. It was. So, let me say that again. So cold, snow doesn't stick together. Uh, where do we live? So it was, it was not like this all the time, but it was, a, it was a shocker. So they're trying to build a snow fort and she's spraying it with water, it was insane. And then I pulled my phone out to take a picture and it promptly died because it was literally 20 below and the phone, like the battery freezes up or something. So that's the, it's the Minnesota joke, I know. Minnesota's actually really cool. And then this is us in Cancun getting away from it. And um, this is uh, two days ago. And Minneapolis is back to looking like this. This is one block from our house with Minneapolis in the back, so definitely been a, a good move for the family. Um, drip became Drip from lead Pages, and um, we have a you know, really good acquisition, or I'm sorry, integration with them now. And I've personally, a lot of stuff's changed for the team in terms of more resources and stuff. Again, from my perspective, I've been able to hand off HR and legal payroll benefits. These are not things I personally enjoy most of operations, hiring support personnel and more. Derek and I focus on the product a lot. We hire engineers. We've tripled our engineering team uh, in the past six months, nine months, I guess. And so far, it genuinely, a bunch of people have asked me before you know, today, like, does this feel like a win type thing? And so yeah, we, it's kind of cool to be able to grow the product with resources of a funded company, but I didn't have to raise the funding. Um, I've handed off most of the work I didn't enjoy and I've achieved that stability. And I've genuinely, and I'm not just saying this, like I have not, there's never, there's not been a day since the acquisition closed that I've woken up and thought, man, I really, I really wished I hadn't done that. It hasn't happened. And Derek and I were having beers two weeks ago. And I asked him out of the blue, have you ever had any regret? You know, and he said, nope. So it feels good. It, you, know, you have a year to think about something, you agonize over it enough. I think you eventually probably make the, the choice that's right. So there's some potential drawbacks to selling. Obviously, there's a bunch. Um, leaving money on the table could be one, right? because we're still growing. So yeah, if I sold now, we probably would've sold for more because you have more revenue. That's something you gotta think about. Working for someone else could be, could be a crappy one. Uh, we've actually had a pretty good transition in and I've really, really enjoyed working for them. It's a good team. And they've left us relatively autonomous, which has helped a lot. And then obviously you could lose control of your product. This, we didn't, we still own the roadmap in general. And uh, obviously if your identity is tied to your product, if it's the only thing you've ever built and it really is your baby, then maybe it'll be tough for you. So I want to leave you with one thought. And this is the thing, this was a question that I've thought about. And when I've posed this to other founders who have sold, they said, man, that helps me feel so clear about why I made that decision. The question is this, if you had the opportunity for a deal structure that works for you and sunset money, is it worth saying no for a chance at two times that amount? Or three times, is it worth the risk? that's a question you can, uh, you may say yes, you may say no, but I think you know what my answer is. I'm out of time. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed that talk and got something out of it that was worthwhile. I'll be back next week with another microconf talk. I'll talk to you then.